Welcome back. Um, if you're new here, I'm Joel, and we are going through a, a series of messages this spring term uh, under the title, We Are Emmanuel. And the idea is that we will spend several weeks looking carefully at those priority values that we've, we've taken from, from what the Bible teaches about Jesus and, and, uh, and applied them to our church and said that these are the key. If you had to boil it down to just four things, here's four ways of saying what Emmanuel is all about. And last uh, week we began the second of the four that we'd finished previously with the value uh, Jesus leads the church. Jesus leads the church. And last week we began looking at this second one. Everything changes except the gospel. Everything changes except the gospel. Last week we, we actually spent more time talking about the other kinds of, I suppose, false gospels that can masquerade instead of the true gospel in, in providing a foundation for a local church. And uh, you can have a, a whole load of different uh, foundations available, but the Bible says there's only really one foundation that is to be laid, and that is Jesus Christ. And, and in saying what we are saying with this second value, everything changes except the gospel, we're saying basically the same thing. We're saying Jesus is, is the abiding central foundation of this church. When we talk about the gospel, we're, we're really talking about him. We're talking about who he is and what he has done. That word gospel, it, it, it literally means good news. It really means a, a glad tidings, that, that phrase you hear at Christmas time, you know, the, the, the great announcement that gets made, that God has sent his son into the world. And, and when we declare the gospel, we're declaring news. We're, we're declaring a victory. We're saying something has happened which has changed everything. One particular victory has taken place, and because of that, everything will have to be different forever and ever, because somebody has won the great victory. That's, that's really what the gospel does. It announces a victory. And we're saying, when we say everything changes except the gospel, that that announcement, that news, that teaching about what Jesus has done is the, is the foundation of the church, and may it never be replaced with another announcement, with another news with another message if you like so having looked at the the false foundations that we need to uh, resist i want to look today at the difference it makes having the right foundation so that's the plan to do that i'm going to read to you from paul's letter to the colossians colossians chapter 3 and i'm going to go from verse 12 to 17 put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When I talk about an announcement, um, it's worth going even more tight on this because there are different kinds of announcement. And you would have heard me say this before if you've been in this church for a while, but it's one of those things I will say again and again because the repetition is healthy. It's not the announcement at half time in a football match, it's the announcement at full time. Very often, our perception of Christianity is that we are receiving a kind of half-time talk from the coach. When you come to church, you get a half-time talk. Depending on the kind of first half you've had, you can anticipate sometimes that the guys get seriously torn into. Other times, they might just get some kind of general encouragement. Either way, the outcome is not decided. And the outcome depends very much on the behavior of the players. And so the coach uses the opportunity to say, guys, we could lose this, we could win this. I want you to work hard for the win. Is that Christianity? Is, is, that, is that what we hear from, from the message of the Bible, that we have to work hard to win the victory? Or, or actually, is it a 90-minute announcement? I'm here to tell you it's, it's, it's the latter. Ultimately, the, the news that the Bible wants to communicate, the good news, the gospel, the glad tidings of Jesus is a 90-minute announcement, or if, as you like to say, if you're playing in the days when Alex Ferguson was manager, a 97th-minute announcement, where, where you basically, you're told the final result, and it's a good result, you won. And not just, not just well done, guys, come in, you've won, but no, you're not even on the pitch in the gospel, you're not even on the pitch. You're in the grandstand. You're in the bleachers. You're one of the spectators. You're, you're one of the supporters, the fans. And your team won. That's the point. Or let's put it like this. Your favorite player won. You know those games that are dominated by somebody who's just you know, a hat trick or more. And just everybody knows if he wasn't on the pitch, this would never have happened. But everybody owes their sense of total victory to this one player. He won, and because he won, we all won. That's the gospel. It really is a, a final declaration of victory by a great warrior, a great conquering hero, a great player. And, and so the announcement doesn't come with a kind of foreboding and a kind of, like, if you've got to try really hard, it doesn't come. It comes more announcement of, it is finished, it is accomplished. It has been won. It changes everything, and it changes for example, the way that the, the Bible is written to us, when you dig in, for example, into these letters, like the one I just read from, Colossians, where Paul is writing to a small, young church in a relatively small town uh, outside Ephesus in what we would now call Turkey, Asia Minor at the time, he's, he's reminding them of what he has already ensured that they have heard. It so happens he never went to Colossae. He sent another preacher called Epaphras who went and preached to them. But, but he is saying to them, this is what was announced to you by Epaphras, that Jesus has completely defeated the powers of evil and through his great sacrificial death upon the cross and conquest of evil and resurrection from the dead, he is the beginner of a new creation and the reconciling of all things to God has already taken place in Christ. This is Paul's 
wonderful theme in Colossians. Colossians is a massive letter. It's just mighty. It really blows your hair back when you really understand what he's saying. And you, you just read it through once and you get the sense of epic about it. It's so big and dramatic. And you need to know it's, it's, it tends to be late on in the letters that Paul tended to write that he starts to give his readers instructions. He starts to give what we would perhaps call imperatives. In other words, he tells them what to do. When you, when you come into Christianity, you kind of expect perhaps to read a letter from the Apostle Paul. and It would start off with, dear Christians in Colossae, here are the rules. Dear Christians in Brighton, dear Christians in, in Shoreham, dear, dear Christians in Hove, dear Christians in East Brighton, here is how to be a good person. As, as I instructed you, do these following things. You will find generally that's not the tone. And when it is the tone, it's very, is a very big reason for it an unusual reason for it, because Paul's letters generally, and all the letters generally, are very different than that. They are rammed with news, with announcements, with information, with what we would call indicatives, not imperatives. In other words, saying what has happened. Saying what Jesus has done, not what we should do. What Jesus has done. And then, later on in the letters, he tends to get to that point sometimes about halfway through, sometimes later it seems, where he will say, okay, in view of what we've been saying, this is what we need to do. A friend of mine was um, asked to go and preach four sessions from chapter four of the New Testament book of Ephesians. And he was, he was asked to come and they said, we would like you to come do four sessions on Ephesians chapter four. And he came and he spent the first three doing Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3. And they got a bit cross with them. They said, we, we haven't even touched this. This whole point was Ephesians 4. What is, why are you doing this? He said, if I just come to you with Ephesians chapter 4, you'll miss the whole point of Ephesians chapter 4. You can't understand what Paul tells you to do until you understand what Paul says Jesus has done. You must get that clear. And we as Christians must do the same. We must this is very important for you. Not just a lecture today on the Sunday in church. I'm telling you, this is important for your life today, 20 centuries later. If you understand your Christianity as the things that you have to do to, to, just to make sure that you're a good Christian, perhaps to keep holy, to make sure that God's happy with you, well, first of all, it will be very discouraging. And at the best of times, you will be a nightmare. Because when you think you're doing well, you'll be awful. And, and so we, we, we constantly, if we fall into that trap, failing in one way or the other, get very deeply introspective and discouraged or very arrogant and self-righteous. I mean, all the time, Christianity isn't meant to be about what we do. It's all about what he has done. And so my friend made, made that point very well in his, 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 uh, his decision to stick with chapter 4. But you see it even here in the verses I read to you. Do you notice in verse 12, the third word I read to you? We've got to read our Bibles a little carefully to get the point sometimes. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. The word then, what it suggests is that he's building on something he's already said. Put on then, okay, it's, it's, you know, understand, it's, it's one of those words that joins a clause with a previous one in an argument. He's saying, I told you something a few minutes ago. You could substitute it with the word therefore. Because of what I said earlier, do this. 
And the, the case in point is actually right here. Put on then. You go back, you find in verse 5, he, he says, put some stuff to death. In verse 12, he's saying, put on some things. So verse 5 is put off some things. Verse 12 is put on some things. So we need to go back further than verse 5 to see what the, new, the indicative, the news is. And we get to verses 1 to 4. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's the news. You say, listen, the most extraordinary, apocalyptic, epic thing that could possibly have happened has happened in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection from the dead. It wasn't just that he died. You did too. You, you died. If you believe in Jesus, you belong to Jesus. You're joined with Jesus. He dies, you die. You, you're, with, you're one with him. There's no way, there's no way around this. You didn't just have a sort of a strange experience of feeling a bit dead. No, no, no. In Christ, we died. Sure as anything. We, we belong to Christ. He died. We died. He was raised. We were raised. We belong somewhere completely different. We've, we obviously belong in a very real sense to 21st century Brighton, Hove, Shoreham, and the rest. We belong to our families, to our jobs. We belong to this passing age, to be sure. But Paul says more important than all of that, we belong to the risen Lord Jesus. That's who we are. That's our address. That's our identity. That is it. That is the story of your life. That's a phrase we're used to using, isn't it? It's the story of my life. When, you, when something bad happens, when you fail, you blow your driving test, or you, you do badly in your mocks, or you, you get discouraged because someone's a bit rude to you, or, you know, or you, somebody dumps you, or it's the story of my life. You know that, that expression? Paul says, no, that's not. That. Here's the story of your life. Jesus died, you died. Jesus rose, you rose. That's your story. That is your story. Everything needs to be seen through that. And so Paul says, therefore, th then, 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 put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He, he's helping us to see everything in the light of this huge and important announcement. What I want to do in the rest of our time is, is really answer a couple of big questions. First of all, what difference does this make? What difference does it make? And then before we finish, I hope we'll also we'll look at how do we stay building on a gospel foundation? What are the ways to ensure it? If churches can go askew and, and get the wrong building tools and the wrong building materials or even start messing around with a foundation, how can we prevent that as a church? How can we stay, stay with the right foundation? And that's what we'll finish off with. So first of all, let's look at the difference that this makes. And the first point I want to do is just... Just ordinary life change. What difference does the gospel make to the pursuit of life change? Which, by the way, everybody wants, right? There's no one who doesn't want their life to change. We might feel like that's just a New Year's resolution issue. This might be a kind of a painful subject for some of you this late in the year. But, but, but whatever we think about New Year's resolutions... The reality is all through the year, people want their lives changing, don't they? We, we do. I mean, you don't have to go to church to believe that. It's not a religious issue, or at least not, it's not a sort of a church issue. It's an everywhere issue. You go to a newsagent, you'll notice that life change is everyone's favorite subject. Look at the magazine rack. Every single front cover is basically telling you, repent, change. It doesn't use the word repent. That sounds way too religious, but it's basically saying that. 
is saying, do this different and you'll be happy. Be better at this. Stop doing that. The way to a happier you, the way to a better body, the way to better sex life, the way to better money, the way to a better train set. I don't know. You, know, you look at the certain magazines, you'll get different. But you, you, you'll, get, you'll get a whole range of different options in terms of how to improve your life. Because, of course, we might not want to be honest about it and accept and pre- we might pretend that, no, I'm, I'm happy. I don't need to improve. I'm not into self-help. Ah, come on. Everyone's in, in it at some stage for the day. I've got, I've got, to, got to improve. I've got to. This desire to improve seems to be instinctive. What, what's interesting is that although we seek to improve, we're extremely split on what improvement looks like. There are a billion different options. There are perhaps 20 billion, perhaps at least 7 billion, as many people as there are on planet Earth, in terms of how to improve. There seems to be no blueprint We've yet to be sure and come together on agreement. This is what the right life is in the 21st century, broken up society that we live in, which is so sort of deconstructed and individualistic, where everybody's got their own goals and gods and desires and opinions and belief structures. We can't nevertheless shake away the idea that there must be something better. So we're pursuing some goal, but we don't know what it is. We don't really know what it is, even though we can't deny the fact that there must be something. There must be something worth pursuing. It's interesting to me that in this, going back to verse 10, which I didn't read out for time, but Paul refers to the Christians as those who've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's a very interesting verse. There's not time to really unpack it, but imagine, imagine I guess, a bunch of mirrors arguing about which is the best mirror. It's perhaps the helpful way to see this here. What's a mirror for? In reality, unless you, you know, you're really trying to purchase a mirror and you're really making a decision about you know, which is the best mirror, you don't notice mirrors so much. You notice more what they reflect. A, a mirror that is arguing with another mirror about which one of us is the best mirror. Well, I'm much better than you. Look at my edgings. Look at my, oh, I'm, I'm very flat. No, I'm so, so am I. I'm a mirror. We're both flat. Well, I'm tall and you're short. Well, I'm round and you're square. And all these kind of arguments, they're both completely missing the point because the point of the mirror is to reflect someone else. A mirror finds its, its, its whole purpose and meaning as it reflects somebody else. And that's our story. Without knowing the God whose image we're made in, the one whose image we're to bear, we're really, we're really pursuing strange goals. And that's our problem. We don't seem to know left to ourselves. It's, it's because God's grace has come to us, giving us the, the, renewing us in knowledge so that we understand what life's for. We understand why we were born. We understand truly how to be happy, not just by losing 10 stone or you know, maybe that's a bit much, two stone or, you know, I don't know much about these things, losing weight and, and you know, getting better this, that and the other. Yeah, you might make yourself happy. You know, though, don't you, that every person who's pursuing that, for everyone that, that is desperate to say lose a few pounds, there'll be someone who has lost those pounds and still feels like life's empty. I thought this would make me happy. No, it hasn't. Because in the end, that wasn't the goal. Like a mirror that's facing downwards. It's like, just, I'm not reflecting. No, reflect the glory of the light of God. Reflect his image. Find him. You'll find what genuine, genuine life 
is meant to be about. But here's the thing, and I've gone off point there to make a separate point, but let me, let me come back here to talk about how the gospel changes our approach to life change. How does the good news of Jesus Christ change our approach to life change? And it's really richly expressed, really, in, again, the opening part of verse 12. Let's go back there again. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But just notice those three words I emphasized. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three powerful words which Paul says the Colossians are already enjoying. Paul hasn't been to Colossae. He doesn't really know the people he's writing to. He knows them by reputation. He knows enough. He says in chapter 1, I know about you. I know what Epaphras has told me. I know enough. He, he, he probably knows they have good days and bad days. He probably knows that there are people in the Colossian church who pray regularly, fast regularly. He probably knows that there are some people who are just so sweet and kind with everybody they meet that you kind of think, have they ever sinned in their life? He probably knows as well there are some people in the church in Colossae who've only just become Christians and they're still more or less doing the same things they were doing before they became a Christian, just stopped doing a few. He probably knows as well that there's some people in the church in Colossae who've been Christians for about five, maybe even ten years, I don't know, and they're really struggling to give up some of the habits that they had when they became Christians. And they're really angry with themselves, they still can't quit. They're beginning to really hate themselves and get discouraged to the point of quitting. He, he, knows, he knows churches. Paul knows churches. He started lots of them. He knows human nature. He knew it better than most people in the ancient world. You read Romans chapter 7. You know, this is a guy who knows what people are like better than you and me. But what does he say about them? Chosen, holy, beloved. That's it. That's, that's, that's all that matters as far as Paul's concerned. What are you people like? What are you like? This is what you're like. You're holy, you're chosen, and you're beloved. That's it. That's what you already are. Why? Because you belong to the one who is chosen. You belong to the one who is holy, the one who is beloved. The Christian is someone who is joined to Christ. He's not joined Jesus' club. He's joined Jesus. He's one with Christ. How could you be more holy than to be one with the one who is God? So the Christian is not the person who should be saying, if only I could become holy. The Christian is the one who says, by God's grace, I've become holy. In spite of what I know about myself, my failings, my weaknesses, my, my many frailties, my, the weakness before temptation and the repeated failure in these areas of sin and the, the way I wind up this person, I still keep arguing with my, with my parents or I, I still get into fights and arguments with my school friends and my teachers and I'm still lazy and I, all these areas of such weakness. And If only I could just succeed in these areas of failure, then I would be holy. Paul says, no, 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 no. Holy already, by God's grace. Holy already. Why? Because you've achieved something? No, because Christ did. Because you belong to Christ. 
This is you. This is who you really are. When we understand this, and it takes a lifetime to understand it, to be fair, we're always re-understanding it, aren't we? If you've been in this church for decades, you know exactly what I mean. You learn the lessons of grace, it seems to me, pretty much every month. I feel like I learn it every week when I go to the table. I'm reminded again, oh, this is where I stand. Grace of God changes the way I perform. See, if I don't get this straight, I will always answer the question, how is your relationship with God going on the basis of how I feel it's going? How is your relationship with God going? Instinctive response, oh, I feel, yeah, I'm not sure. I feel about that, I feel that. I tell you, please, can we stop doing that? Your relationship with God, if you belong to Christ, is that relationship with God, the relationship his son has with him. That's your relationship with God. Feel like it? No, I don't. Don't care. Not right now, I don't care. I mean, I do care, but just, just hold on to that for a moment. Now, if you're not in Christ, you're in Adam, and your relationship with God is bad, and you need to come to Christ. But if you're in Christ, my friend, you, you are holy, chosen and beloved what a rich word beloved <laughs> imagine the love of god the, the unearned favor kindness mercy goodness of god we have no category for it we talk in terms of love as though we know what love is we've no idea any tiny flimsiest decimal percentage fractional experience of the love of god is enough to floor us it overwhelms us, doesn't it? And we're all, we're, when we experience his love, trust me, we're only ever knowing tiny atomized experiences of it. We're only ever dancing around the edges. God's welcoming us into eternity of knowing it. And so, so when Paul says, this is what you are, chosen, holy, beloved, he's inviting us into an enjoyment of God, a knowledge of God that will change everything about how we see ourselves, about how we see changing our lives. I've got to change my life. Well, yes. Yes, 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 yes. You've got to change your behavior. He's going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, he talks about that in chapter 3. He's going to say, because of these things, do this, 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 and this. For sure, he's going to do that. But he's not going to do it as though he's saying, this is how to earn holiness. This is how to earn chosenness. This is how to earn God's love. He's saying nothing of the kind. And when we think, when we think that's what our Christianity should be, it becomes powerless and hypocritical. Law, which is what we're talking about when we talk about just you know, try to improve your life, life change, you know, become a better you. Just trying to do things through, through law, not only is it painful, it's powerless. It doesn't ultimately work. Have you noticed that? It doesn't really work. Not really. I, I smiled when one of Brighton's players scored what was probably one of the most extraordinary goals I've seen this season. Just an amazing goal. Some of you may have seen it. And, and afterwards, probably, I mean, you're not allowed to take your shirt off. That's the law. You're not allowed to take your shirt off and throw, you know, do this thing. But, oh, he did it. <laughs> and uh, he ran half the pitch, you know, kind of twizzling his shirt and his top. The referee's like, <laughs> yellow card. I mean, come on, this is a 30,000 people just saw one of the most extraordinary things that they will ever see in that stadium. And I feel so sorry for the ref. <laughs> He's got to come back to the law. Don't, 
you dare take your shirt off. As if that's the main thing. I mean, the guy, I can imagine the guy's like, I'll take the rap. I don't care. Our yellow card's fine. That's fine. I just did the best thing I ever did in my life. 30,000 roaring, even the West Ham supporters. Wow. It's the moment of his life. Do you think he cares about a little law? Law is not powerful, my friend. Even when it comes with threat, it's not powerful. It's kind of powerful. I can threaten my kids and they will actually, yeah, they will get in line if the threat feels dangerous, but their hearts will barely be touched. Their hearts won't really be changed. They might change. The Bible does say that discipline does work on the heart, to be sure, but not as the main thing. It come, if it doesn't come from a heart of grace, it loses its power. God's power comes through this gospel. You will not be changed by law. You'll be changed by a revelation of the glory of God in Christ. When you see how magnificent God is in the face of Jesus Christ, it will turn you around inwardly. It will take years and years. It will have to be more patient. You'll think, oh, this isn't working. I've been a Christian for six months and I'm still nasty to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try six years. It'll take a while. Trust me, it's the only thing that's going to work. Because your heart needs to change, not just your outward behavior. Your heart and your heart, the Bible says, will be changed as you behold, as in a mirror, like an old-fashioned mirror, sometimes a bit ropey, couldn't always see everything nice and clear as you can with modern shiny mirrors. Beholding as in a mirror, 2 Corinthians 3 I'm talking about, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed. You are, as you see what? You see the love of God to you in Christ. If I stand here and say, here's, how to, here's the foundation of Emmanuel Church, my friends. We've all got to love God. Love God. Love God harder. Come on, start loving him now. Come on, love him. Or else. I'd say you will start hating God. You'll start hating God eventually. Because if, if God seems to you someone who needs to be loved and must be loved or he'll strike out at you, if that's all you see of him, I don't see how that will change you. What will change you is when you see his love for you. And you see it in such a transforming degree. And you see yourself and your failure and your weakness and you realize he loves me even in spite of that. <sighs> he loves me in spite of this. He, and he loves me this much. Oh, how could I not love him? <laughs> your heart is just stolen. You stole my heart. That's, that's the language of the Bible. With one look, you've stolen my heart. It's not, come back, yellow card. You've you, you won me over. How could I not love you? See, that's what he's saying. Chosen, beloved. In light of this, yeah, you, you're going to live differently. <laughs> so this is, this is the language. Even in Scripture where Jesus himself speaks to the disciples. You ever notice that in John's Gospel? If you love me, you'll obey me, he says. If you love me, you'll obey me. I suppose sometimes when we hear that verse, we might hear it. I mean, I've, I sometimes might feel tempted to use that verse on my kids. <laughs> if they're being all sweet with me on Father's Day. We really love you, Dad. Then you will obey my commands. <laughs> that's, that's the temptation, right? That's not quite what Jesus means. If you love me, you'll obey me. If, if you love me. That's, that's where it will come from. It will come from the love that you have for me, that my Father has for me. You're brought into this. And it works its way out in your obedience. If you love me, you'll obey me. Okay, second thing, really quick. We need to rush these other ones. Changes our relationships. Okay, changes our approach to life change. Changes our relationships. So verse 12 again. 
holy and beloved. And then he lists a few things he wants them to put on. It doesn't mean put on in a false way, like put on someone's voice. He means literally to put on the clothes that suit you, that, that fit you. In view of the fact that you are now six foot one, could you please wear a suit for a six foot one person? That's what he's saying. In view of the fact that you've been transformed, you're now holy, you're in Christ, put on these things, all right? Now you're not a three-year-old, don't wear a three-year-old's clothes. That's what he's saying. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I notice at the end of that list, he comes back to the word love. He says, you are beloved. And then the last word in the list is put on love. Our love for one another will most fruitfully stream out of our being loved by God. That's the lesson. Love one another, even as I have loved you, said Jesus to the disciples. It comes from the knowledge of his love. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because if it doesn't come from the knowledge and the reception of God's love, our loving of one another will always be a transaction. You will always be loving people in the hope that they will love you back. You will be loving people to use them. You will need people. You will become dependent on people in a way that you shouldn't. You will fear them. You will fear their judgment of you. You will fear if they leave you. You will fear if they let you down. You will fear if they diss you. And so because that becomes the, the most important thing in your life, you've got to love them. Oh, I better love them. If I don't love them, what will happen to me? That's not really love in the end, my friend, is it? That's not good. That doesn't sound like love. That sounds a little selfish. No, no, no. To love someone because we've been loved, like he even says, forgiving even as you've been forgiven. If I forgive someone who's done something horrendous to me, because, well, I might, I might need them to forgive me one day, I tell you, that's not powerful enough. The only way, really, to love people through pain and to do that, that word he has here, to forbear with one another, that's a strong word in the Bible, forbearance. Churches that are healthy must have a lot of forbearance because we're in it for the long haul. Some of you have been in this church for decades. You've had to have a lot of forbearance, right? Put up with things you don't really like, sometimes decisions you don't completely agree with, and people who mistreat you, people who let you down. You, you go through stuff, you're disappointed with each other, you have the tough conversations, and you feel, oh, we're still friends. And Church is not always easy, friends. Let's be real. We have to have awkward relationships sometimes. Church is full of that, the real grit of elbow to elbow, how do you do that? You can't do it without forbearance. Without saying, in the end, I have been loved more extravagantly than I could possibly ever begin to imagine, let alone deserve. So I think I can love people. I think I can. I don't always want to, but I know too much not to, right? I know too much. In the end, I know that I've been loved more than I deserve. So, yeah, I could just get the ump. I could just, I could just be offended. But Jesus could have been offended way, way more than I should be. But he never gave up on me. He was so forbearing. He went through everything. He went through the garden. He went through the cross. I think I can be patient with people, yeah? I trust, trust me, in this church, people will hurt you and let you down. They will. They will. How are you going to handle that? 
If we're built on a foundation of be loving to each other because it's good to have a loving church, it won't work. It won't work. But if we're built on a foundation of love one another even as Christ loved us, okay, that's different. We've got some fuel in the tank now. We've got some, some capacity. We've got some potency. We can do this thing. But only by the grace of God because we have a gospel foundation. Let's move on to the third thing. Just the changes that come into our lives through the gospel. Diversity. When, when a church is built on a gospel foundation, it means it's going to be a real mixture of people. Massive mixture of people. Gradually. At first, it might feel like we're all the same. You know, we, we, a church starts in a certain part of town, certain kinds of people. That's good. That's, that's understandable. Gradually, it will shift. It will change, hopefully. People of different ethnicities and backgrounds and economic positions and educational backgrounds. And so on. It changes massively. God loves that. He wants that. He wants an international people, for sure. But that challenges us at least sometimes. Why? Because we, we tend to lay quite a lot of importance in our background and our nationality sometimes. So certainly our inner clique. This is who I, I belong to these people. That's who I am. That's my identity. I belong to this group. I feel safe with this group. When someone comes in who is different than this group, it threatens me very much. And we might pride ourselves on being very open and tolerant Brightonians. You know, we, we're very open-ended. We're very porous in our boundaries. We, 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 know, we all voted Remain. We, well, no problem. We're lots of different people around. That's, that's kind of what we like here in Brighton, right? If you didn't vote Remain, I'm not saying you did. Just, 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 just getting my point. But friends, everybody here, whatever your political background, whatever, be real about this. It's sometimes a real stretch to accept the changes God brings into your life through the people who are different than you. How do you handle that? Well, actually, it's, it's there in verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You say, look, in this new king, in Christ's new arrangement, because of the cross, because of the good news, all these boundaries, all these ways of identifying ourselves, they've had their day. They're, they're done. They're done. Even this weird one, circumcised and uncircumcised, why, why make an issue of that? Isn't that peculiar? No, it's not. Here's the weird thing. Circumcision was given to Israel kind of as a humbling thing. It is pretty humbling. <laughs> and certainly for boys, you know, raised it. It was a way of saying to them, your male pride, your male sense of authority, I'm going I'm to give you a sign in your flesh that will humble you from the eighth day of your lives as a nation. I will humble you so that you're dependent on me and not on your own fertility and prowess and masculine dominance. That's hidden, it seems, in what the, the circumcision covenant's got that in it. The weird thing is that by the time the New Testament is written, somehow <laughs> they've turned circumcision, that very humbling rite, into something to be boastful about. Isn't that weird? The thing God gives us to humble ourselves, we boast in. We'll turn anything into a reason to be boastful, even circumcision. The thing that actually is meant to make us feel, I'll tell you, this, this happens in so many ways. God gives us a gospel that's full of grace. Some people who say, we believe in the gospel of grace in this church, end up being quite proud, boastful people. Isn't that weird? We, well, we preach grace. We don't preach that like rubbish churches over there. We're a proper grace church. It doesn't look like it. Because we, we, we take the things that are meant to humble us and we turn them into things to, to, to crush other people with. And that what gospel of grace is meant to do is create in us a humility that says, 
I am here in Christ out of sheer gift, absolute mercy and nothing more. So when someone comes through that door who's not like me, who I find a bit offensive or a bit different than me, if I dare for one moment to think, well, I don't know if they should be allowed, it proves I've never really got it. God help us. God help us to follow through with grace so that we're always ready for the diversity and the, the, the breadth of people that he wants to bring into our lives and into our church. Well, I'm only going to briefly mention as we leave and as we get ready to respond in worship, the different things that we do as a community and the practices that we do. And let me just say them very quickly. They're all really easy to remember, all right? They all begin with S. Sermons, sacraments, songs, and stories. Why do we preach? Why do we sing? Why do we take bread and wine? Why do we get into small groups and tell each other our stories? Why? Because this foundation needs to be built on really, really deliberately. And so every week we come back to what? The gospel. In our preaching, in the table, in the songs we sing. We sing songs about Jesus. We preach sermons about Jesus. We take bread and wine to remind us of Jesus. We have baptism to remind us of what Jesus did. All of our regular practices do what? They take us back to the foundation, the one true foundation. This is God's kind, abiding tool. He gives us special railings. He says, okay, you enjoy yourselves as a church, but watch the railings. Here are the railings. I want sermons. I want songs. I want sacraments. I want stories. You do that stuff. Do those things, and you'll stay within the boundaries of the gospel. Make sure that it's the gospel always that comes through in all of these practices, and it will keep us on the right foundation. We're going to do that right now with our singing and our communion, so let's pray right now. Let me just pray. Father, we are grateful for this amazing salvation. And we pray, help us to stand and live in the good of it. In Jesus' name, amen.